even public ones. And so I want to get back to some of the main foundations, not, not exhaustively, but three key things that we can really look at, especially as we launch into this fall, into life and rhythms and all sorts of things that will be required of us. And there's lots of things that I think have been made primary in churches. Lots of things that have been made primary even in just evangelical Christian circles. Over the last couple of years, many things have been made primary in the life of the church or just in the life as Canadians in this culture. How do we know that we've kept the main thing the main thing? How do we know what a healthy church is? What does it mean to actually experience spiritual life in a healthy way? So we want to answer some of these questions, and today we're going to start by looking at the gospel. So I want to start with the question, what exactly is the gospel? Now right away you're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, we just hired a new senior associate pastor who doesn't know what the gospel is. But that's not the case. But this is an important question because if I'm honest, if I was to sit with 20 of you and ask you what is the gospel, we would probably have 20 different variations or very different angles of how you understand the gospel. A lot of things affect that. It depends what kind of tradition you come from, what Christian kind of circle you grew up in, or if you didn't grow up in a Christian circle at all. What kind of brought you to faith, how you understand where you are in your faith journey, all of those things would determine how you answer the question, what is the gospel? And so I don't want to ignore that. I don't want to minimize the scope of the gospel. We want to spend today, I actually want us to draw our eyes up to the fact that when we come to understand the gospel, it truly is inexhaustible. That that there's never a time in our life where we get beyond the gospel, amen? That the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just the front door to Christianity and then we advance on to something more, but that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the front door and the power that gives us the ability to live out the Christian identity that is purchased for us in Christ. That's the gospel. So I want us to feel almost an overwhelming weight from the gospel. All throughout the Old Testament, we hear the word glory, and the Hebrew word is kavod, and it means weightiness. And I think that when we come to understand the scope of the gospel, there should be a weightiness to it, amen? There should be a weightiness. So if I was to ask you what is the gospel, we would have different answers. Some of you would talk theology right away, because that's your jam. Some of you would just talk about what Jesus has done for you. You wouldn't really have theological categories, and that's okay. Some of you would be like, well, I think it's the part in the New Testament, right? <laughs> like, that's, that's that. I think it's a genre of music that Kanye West is trying to do now. Is that? Yeah. <laughs> Some of you would be what Ed just said. It's like, oh, that's what preachers preach, right? Preachers preach the gospel. That's, that's what it is. Well, and in, in, in a lot of evangelical circles, I think, you would hear something along the lines of the, the plan of salvation, like you're a wicked bad sinner going to hell, Jesus died for your sins so you don't have to, so you can go to heaven. You're like, okay, is that the gospel? Well, kind of, right? It's it's not less than that, right? But it's certainly more than that, amen? If we only focus on what we're saved from, we never actually get to walk into what we're saved to. And the gospel encompasses all of that. And Springville, I think this is vital today because many Christians and many churches don't necessarily have a heretical or wrong view of the gospel. We just have an incomplete one. Are you with me on that? 
Have you ever felt the weightiness of that? Of like, I think I should have, have this nailed by now. Like, I should be able to explain the gospel a little bit better, right? You feel kind of the weightiness of that. I don't think our main issue is that we actually have just heretical gospels everywhere. I think it's that we often struggle with an incomplete one. And I think that some of us, familiarity with the gospel, over-familiarity can breed apathy. So I would say that I think for us today, what I want to do is I want us to understand that the gospel is not just a thing that we grasp or, or something that Jesus said or did, but that the gospel is like a diamond, and that depending how you turn it around, you get different aspects. And as light shines on it, it constantly shows its brilliance. That's the gospel. And I would say some of you, you haven't even, like the gospel caught your eye and you're just starting to explore it. You're welcome here. Others of you have been exploring the gospel for years. You've been turning it around, you've been examining it, and you're still stirred by its beauty. And others of us still are not stirred anymore. Or it's boiled down to, yeah, I, I was going to hell and now I get to go to heaven. But it doesn't stir you anymore. We want to see the scope, the bigness, the uniqueness, the power, the beauty, the weightiness of the gospel. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 calls the gospel first of first importance. Like this is a big deal, amen? Like this, this is the main thing. It's of first importance. Why is this such a big deal? Why would Paul call the gospel of first importance? Well, I think it's that because if we don't get the gospel right, we can get Christianity wrong. And it's happening. It's happening everywhere. The last couple of years have shown us lots of examples of what the gospel or what churches have made things to be about. Amen? So if we come back to the gospel, we have to get back and go, well, it's not just the front door of Christianity. It's the whole Christian life. It's not just the Jesus part that we get in a sermon or the Jesus part that we get in the New Testament, but it's the entire redemptive story about the God who pursues and saves rebels. That's the gospel. It's not just what we respond to once. It's the thing that holds us every single day. All right, so before we explore this, let me pray for us to that end, because that is so important. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you looked at lost, broken rebels and you said, I want them as daughters and sons. And that because of that, you sent your son, Jesus. And that he has come to do what we cannot do, to live how we cannot live, and that in him, we are free. We thank you for the working of the Holy Spirit in the gospel that you change us, you turn our heart outward to you instead of inwards to ourself, and that you bring us to a place of desperation and neediness and dependence upon you. So this morning, regardless of where we are in our current understanding of the gospel, I pray for more. I pray, Spirit, you would show us more, you would open our eyes, you would open our ears, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of you, Jesus. We ask all these things, the only name that matters, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so what is the gospel that Jesus announced? That's all we're going to accomplish today, okay? What is the gospel that Jesus announced? Now, it's vital to start here because, like I said, if we don't start with the gospel that Jesus preached, we might end up with a gospel that Jesus didn't. So I love how Mark opens up his gospel biography about the gospel. Watch this, Mark 1, verse 1. 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Pause there. That's all we're getting this morning, okay? Now, this is packed. Like, this sentence is packed. Not only is it the summary and the title of Mark's biography about Jesus, but notice he doesn't start with a genealogy about Jesus of, like, who is his grandma and his mom, and his, right? Like, he doesn't start there like Matthew and Luke do. He also doesn't start with theological significance around Jesus showing up like John does, but he starts with the key word, this is the beginning of the gospel. Now, to understand why that's a big deal, we have to understand that the first century audience would have been very familiar with the word gospel. The word is euangelion. Say euangelion. You sound good. And it wasn't a religious term. It wasn't a spiritual term. It was actually a socioeconomic military term. Euangelion was a good announcement that would go out to a people to say, hey, we won. We won a war. Or, hey, the famine is over. Or, hey, there's a relief of some tyrant that used to reign over us, and now he's gone. Right? So euangelion meant all of that. It meant something new was happening. It meant something earth-shattering and history-making was taking place. That's the good news. That's the euangelion. And Mark uses that here very on purpose because... All throughout the first century, there's a famous Latin inscription that was found many, many centuries ago. And it said, the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. The beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. He's our hope. Right? That's how we are going to finally have relief. Caesar is going to do it. The emperor will save us. And Mark is using this intentionally, be like, no, he's not. That's not the king we need. That's not who we need to rule and reign. He is not the one to deliver us because Jesus is here. There's also a famous statement, euangelion divi filius. If you can memorize that and then say it to your friends, they'll sound very impressed. Euangelion divi filius, which meant the good news of God's son. And to us, we're like, oh, Jesus. And it's like, no, no, that was about Caesar. That was on their money. It's the good news of God's son. He's going to save us. So Mark is packing so much into this sentence to make a very important statement because by starting like this, listen, by starting like this, Mark is not just announcing the gospel. He's also confronting alternative gospels of the day. He is confronting competing views of the good life competing worldviews that would come at you and say, this is how you find fulfillment. This is what you should put your hope in. This is how you live life to the fullest. And Mark is saying, but the good news is here. He's confronting the alternative gospels. He's confronting some of the other things that were floating around in his cultural moment. That's amazing that he's doing that. Some examples for us today is the gospel of the left or the gospel of the right. Political solutions is what we need to put our hope in. The gospel of postmodernism, the gospel of postmodern gender theory, the gospel of a certain socioeconomic bracket that you need to reach in order to be fulfilled, uh, the suburban dream, keeping up with the Joneses, whatever it is, the gospel of decadence and entertainment and just more and better. Church, there's tons of gospels floating around that are competing for, to form our view of the good life. And under many of the cultural gospels that we see today in our Western culture, sounds a lot like this. Happiness is found inside of you. It's when you discover your authentic self. 
It's based on what you want, what you think, what you believe, and what you feel, and that is the greatest good, so go and do you. That's the gospel of our day. The centerpiece of our Western culture is the self. The centerpiece of our Western culture is us. Self-esteem, self-image, self-actualization, self-empowerment, expressive individualism, find truth, meaning, purpose, looking inside of yourself, and then, by the way, tell the universe what to do. You caught that one? How'd you get here in life? I manifested it. You manifested it? (laughs) Yeah, like I just told the universe what to do and it did it. Whoa, you're amazing. But But honestly, if we pay attention enough to some of the cultural gospels, we'll understand that at the centerpiece of it is is self. And notice how the gospel of Jesus Christ starts by pointing us not inward to ourself, but away from ourselves. Did you catch that? That Springville, the church needs to understand that the gospel constantly, only, and forever will be about Jesus. The gospel is announced by Jesus. It's accomplished by Jesus. The gospel is entirely about who Jesus is, what Jesus said, how Jesus lived, what Jesus accomplished, and what Jesus will finish when he consummates the kingdom rule he invited us into. Amen. Amen. That's the gospel. It's not done. We're in the middle of the gospel. We get to experience the power of the gospel. So hear me, this is not a rebuke, this is a loving correction. If your understanding of the gospel starts with you and is focused on you, at best it's an incomplete view of the gospel. Are you with me on that? It's an incomplete view of the gospel. And it's so subtle, church, because self can determine so much about the Christian life and we not even see it. It can, and it does. It does for me, I catch myself all the time. God is really just the means to the end of what I actually want. I don't know about you. Maybe it's just me. (laughs) That stuff creep up and creep out, that scares me. Because I'm like, oh, I just want to use God to get what I actually want. It's so subtle. The result of this consumerism and individualism in our culture is that we can actually, without even seeing it, have God become the means to the true end. And my relationship with God ultimately be focused on me on my struggles, on my family, on my marriage, on my money, on my career, on my future. Are all those bad things? No. But are they the main thing? No. The gospel is not leaving us with an excessive focus on self and a a preoccupation of what God can do for us, but actually a preoccupation with him. That's the gospel. Self-sufficiency is a sermon of our culture. It's a bad one, but it's a sermon of our culture and the gospel is the opposite because it starts with drawing our attention to Jesus. That's the first thing that's happening here. The second thing that happens in Mark is we see a few verses later, the first time that Jesus announces the gospel. That's important, right? So we're like, okay, the gospel's about Jesus. Well, what does Jesus say about the gospel that is about him? If you look a few verses later, down in verse 15 of Mark 1, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the what? The good news, the gospel of God. And he said this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. So repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. Now this idea of the time being fulfilled is that something's happening now, but it's the thing that's happening now that's gonna change everything for everyone. There's a special moment happening. Something's within reach now. That's why Jesus says that the kingdom has come near. 
that that's actually within reach. So Jesus points us to that, but then also points us back before he points us forward. That's interesting. Because if you've been given a gospel of like, oh, the gospel means I'm forgiven so I go to heaven when I die, and that's really the only real power of the gospel, what we have to understand is that before Jesus points forward, he points us backwards. Do you catch that? Even in verse 1, where Mark uses the word beginning. Now, when you think about beginnings, where does that kind of start to point you back to? The book of beginnings. That's a direct hyperlink. Mark is hyperlinking us all the way back to show us that this story is new, but it's not the beginning of the story. And he brings us all the way back to the garden. The beginning of the gospel is not in a barn with the birth of Jesus, but it's actually in a garden with the creation of everything. That's where the gospel begins. Now, real quick, we don't have tons of time, but in the beginning, you know the story, God, right? You notice that word in the beginning, God. The whole story is about God, not about how young or old the earth is, not about you and me, not about any of that, but the whole story is about God. This God speaks, he acts, he orders, he creates, he assigns function and rule and beauty and uniqueness, and then we get to the most unique creative act in Genesis, and it's what? Well, let us make human beings in our image creates these human beings different than anything else that was created. These human beings are created to know God, to to live life with God, and to represent and reflect what God is like. They're given a job description, right? They're given a task. They're, They're not just given a title of image bearer, but they're also given a job. Now, that word image bearer is very, very important because in the ancient world, that was only used of kings, Kings were image bearers, right? Caesar Augustus was an image bearer of God because he was put there to represent God. But notice what scripture does all the time. It doesn't hold up just key roles. It actually looks at the dignity of human beings and says, you're royalty because you were created to reflect me. That's wild. So it's very countercultural. It's very unique that's what's happening there. Because in Genesis, humanity is given a royal title and task to reflect what God is like and then to go and rule over creation with God. What does that mean and why does it matter? It means that we're not self-defined, but that we're defined by our relationship with God, that we're created to know God and to reflect God. And, And in Genesis, what does it say? It's all good. Before it's all good became a 90s hip hop slang, it was in Genesis. It's all good, baby, baby. It's, right, it's in the Hebrew. It's right there. But it doesn't stay good, right? We know how the story goes. There's a breakdown. Something breaks down in that order. And sin enters the picture, not as a moral issue of like you're doing bad things, bad. But sin enters the picture because of a relational issue. Sin enters the picture because of an identity breakdown Sin enters the picture when humanity, human beings, women and men, exchange God's rule over everything for self-rule over something. And rather than live as image bearers, we build an image apart from God. So ultimately, here's how to understand what happens there in the early pages of Scripture. That sin dethrones God, enthrones self, and by that tragic exchange devalues both God and self. That's what happens with sin. And behind every sin is a mistrust of who God is and what God has said. And so across the pages of Scripture, across history, all you hear is the hiss 
of the serpent from the garden of did God really say? And it's when we don't understand what God has said and who God is that we start to question who we are. And right from Genesis, we see that. The lie from the garden is that God's not God, that God's not good, that God's not for you. God doesn't see, he doesn't care, he doesn't hear, and ultimately he's a killjoy anyway, so live your truth, do what's right and good for you, do you take and eat. That's the lie from the garden. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like it lines up with some of the cultural gospels of our day? The core problem from the garden is not that we do bad things, we do, right? We do. It's not that we do bad things primarily, though. It's that we settle for good things. It's that we settle for good things. C.S. Lewis said that we are half-hearted creatures, that we're far too easily pleased, that we're created for God, but that we settle, that we're created for a banquet, but that we settle for just making mud pies in the slums, he says, that we're actually far too easily pleased, that there's something, there's an impulse in us, a cosmic authority problem in our heart that looks to non-gods to give us what only God can. And here's the thing, though. They're good things, right? Money, success, career, romance, good things. Family, recognition, all of those things are good things, but when they become the main thing and we ascribe more value to them than God, they become a bad thing. And that's the story from Genesis. All throughout scripture, we see this story pointing us forward back to Jesus saying, non-gods over-promise and under-deliver. That's the story. And every day we see this in our culture because we want to put together an image of ourselves. We can't help it. We're made to image something. We're made to be image bearers. The novelist David Foster Wallace who tragically died of suicide not too many years ago, was an absolute genius, on a journey, said this, listen, in, dated, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will never, sorry, you, you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect and being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. David Foster Wallace was not a believer, but he was confessing what's true to every human heart, is that since the fall, we have been running around outside the garden trying to get home that we have been running around imaging ourselves after things that cannot satisfy. And then the garden story doesn't end with rebellion, it ends with a promise of redemption, right? So now we're gonna skip from Genesis 12 all the way through Malachi 3 and then back to Mark, okay, ready? But the story of scripture all the way across is that there's a promise of redemption because in Genesis 3.15, there's this amazing verse that theologians call the proto-evangelium. It's like the pre-gospel. And it's that God promises to arrive, that God promises to rescue, that he's going to fix what's broken inside humanity, that he is going to fix image bearers and bring them back to himself. And then Genesis 12 through Malachi 3, Israel's story is just the garden story writ large, right? That we see Israel not killing it, not doing well, 
Not imaging God perfectly, but actually failing over and over and over again. And that provides us with the backdrop of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that cosmic authority problem that we see throughout all the messy, weird stories in the Old Testament, you know the ones, right? All of those ones lead us to the place in all four gospels that Jesus comes on the scene and the message of the good news is that the kingdom is available because the Son of God is here. Is that not good news? And Mark is saying, no, 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 Rome, Caesar's not gonna do it. It's not gonna be a political fix on this. It's not gonna be a socioeconomic fix on this. We need more. We need the image of God. We need the son of God. We need Jesus's gospel, which is focused on him saying, I am king. God is becoming king again. That's the gospel. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 The Apostle Paul writes this beautiful unpacking of this image of God focused on Jesus. Watch this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He, Jesus, is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church, us. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to bring back everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Amen. That is the gospel. That Jesus would be preeminent. Not just prominent, but preeminent. And if Jesus is not preeminent, supreme, what can happen is we can invite Jesus into our heart instead of laying our lives down at his feet. And Jesus shows up and says, the king is here. The key to his kingdom is paradoxical, though, because it's an invitation into a totally different type of power, right? Not a superior power of the same kind as Rome, but a totally different type of power. And rather than sit on a throne, Jesus gets off the throne and hangs on the cross. He takes his crown off as king and then he puts on a crown of thorns. Rather than come and demand service from subjects in his kingdom, he lays his life down for his subjects so that he can pick it back up again and give them life so full that death will not have the last word. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And rather than have a logo, on, if we had a logo of the flag, right, of the kingdom of God, it wouldn't be a sword, it wouldn't be a throne, it wouldn't be a money sign, but it would be the cross, right? He chooses that as the, the centerpiece of the gospel. The cross that signals that death and defeat and powerlessness and that you, you've lost, that's what the cross says. But Jesus' resurrection reverses everything. Every power that threatens life is defanged. Death doesn't get the last word, but neither does shame, and neither does guilt, and neither neither does anger, and neither does brokenness, and neither does injustice because of the cross. All things are made right. All sad things become untrue in the gospel. So Springville, according to Jesus, which is all that matters, the gospel isn't about us going somewhere when we die, but about God coming here so that we can live. Not that we don't go to hell, 
but that we get God. <laughs> Amen? That's the gospel. Like, like now, it's available right now and forever. That's the good news, that the king is here, that God is made king again, that it's not just information that's religious and helpful and theological, but that it's actually an announcement of an invitation into the kingdom. So if you notice Jesus, when he announces the kingdom, he says, it's here, it's now, repent, come with me. He's saying, trust me, come with me, follow after me, embrace me as rightful king and live. That's the gospel. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to respond to that invitation. Maybe some of us have been sitting with the scope of it. We're feeling the weightiness of the gospel. I want to read some of Jesus' words from Luke 9 to really capture this invitation of what it is that we're responding to. Luke 9, verse 23 through 25 says this, Jesus said to all, isn't that beautiful? Notice that there's no prerequisite already of like, no, no, but you got to kind of be like this. You got to grow up like this. You got to look like this. You got to talk like this. It's like, no, no. He said to all, everyone is invited into the kingdom of God. What does he say? Well, if any of you wants to come with me, you must give up your own way. A reversal of the garden. You see that? Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. How do you profit or win if you gain the entire world but lose and destroy your very self in the process? God has always been after broken self-images. Those of us who would make life and our image built on anything that ultimately can't satisfy us. And Jesus says, deny that, forget that, and calls us to repentance. Some of you, repentance is a, a weird word, it's a bad word, it just sounds like anger. But all throughout scripture, repentance is actually quite beautiful. It's an invitation to turn around, it's an invitation to turn away and trust God for his agenda in the kingdom over mine. It's to give up our self-rule. It's to dethrone ourself and re-enthrone God where he belongs. So I don't know where that needs to happen for you, but that's the invitation of the gospel for us this morning. And the best part about this is that the gospel is within reach, that the kingdom is within reach, that the kingdom is available. So we come full circle that this is only the beginning of the gospel, Mark says. Why? Because he's not done yet. Amen? It's the beginning of the work of redemption. It's the beginning of Jesus saving and rescuing and sending. And every single time the gospel is announced, Springvale, it requires a response. Let us never grow tired or overly familiar with responding to the gospel. And we're going to sing now and respond. That's going to be part of our response. We're going to sing together. We're going to focus on this invitation that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we get to respond to the good news that he has already accomplished for us, that we work from a place of being loved, not earning love, that we work from a place of love that is freely given can never be taken away. That's the gospel. And the invitation that we're gonna sing about right now comes from the words of Matthew 11, Another time when Jesus invites all people, and it says this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The message translation says it this way. Are you tired? Anyone? Are you worn out? Are you burned out? Come to me. 
Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace because I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. This is the gospel. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, you don't love us and pursue us and save us because we're great kids, but because you're a good dad. That you've adopted sons and daughters who need to be reminded of who we are because we belong to you. And the gospel changes us because it changes who our life belongs to. Thank you, Jesus, for the work that you have done to accomplish that, that we can work from our identity and not for it. And Holy Spirit, right now, as we respond, as you convict our hearts, as you stir our hearts to the gospel, that you would reveal to us where we need more of you, more dependence upon you, turning away from our self-rule and rightly putting you into the rightful rule that is yours as king of our lives. We ask that this would make much of you, and because of that, it would change us so that we can be witnesses to your goodness to the world. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.